Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Strong Enough, where we discuss neuromuscular blockade, revise some basic relevant physiology and pharmacology, and talk about neuromuscular monitoring. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So as anaesthetists, we use neuromuscular blockers or paralyzing agents on a frequent basis. Once we get through our primary exam, we can use our working knowledge of dosing, neuromuscular monitoring and reversal agents to get us through the day. But how many of us actually use neuromuscular monitoring for every patient we paralyze? If I'm honest, I don't use it routinely, but I really should be. And in addition, the part two exam often covers complications occurring in the post-anesthetic care unit. And residual neuromuscular blockade is more common than most of us think, as well as being a potentially serious issue in the real world outside of the exam. Now, if you're fortunate enough to be in an institution with freely available Sugamidex, then lucky you. But this topic is still relevant for you, though. So take that hovering finger away from the (laughs) skip button and settle in. If you're a registrar, you may rotate to other institutions where Sugamidex isn't as freely available. And even if you're a permanent employee with easy access to Sugamidex, you may still run into patients where rocuronium is contraindicated and who will require the use of another neuromuscular blocking drug. And further, ANSCA's own professional statement 18, the guideline on monitoring during anaesthesia, states that neuromuscular function monitoring must be available for every patient in whom neuromuscular blockade has been induced and should be used wherever the anaesthetist is considering extubation following the use of a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker. So at the risk of losing you, we'll start with a brief chat about neuromuscular physiology and pharmacology. It's not a bad thing to revise some relevant primary knowledge every now and again. Is it not, though? (laughs) (laughs) We've passed it, but we still need to revisit it. Yes, okay. So, look, the neuromuscular junction consists of a pre-junctional motor nerve ending separated from the post-junctional membrane of the skeletal muscle fibre, which is otherwise known as the motor end plate. This is separated by a synaptic cleft, which is filled with extracellular fluid fluid. The neuromuscular junction contains three types of nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Two of these are postsynaptic, one is junctional and one is extrajunctional, and there is one presynaptic. When an action potential arrives at the nerve terminal, this triggers calcium influx, which combines with various proteins to trigger the release of acetylcholine into the synaptic cleft. Acetylcholine then travels across the cleft, binds to the alpha subunits of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors and changes the permeability of the membrane to various ions. These ion fluxes depolarize the motor end plate and decrease the membrane potential to threshold potential, which then leads to action potential propagation over the skeletal muscle membrane and excitation contraction coupling, resulting in muscle contraction. 
Acetylcholinesterase is situated in close proximity to the cholinergic receptors and is responsible for the rapid hydrolysis of acetylcholine to acetic acid and choline. Rapid hydrolysis of acetylcholine is what prevents sustained depolarization of the neuromuscular junction. This is why you can do your squats and get back up at the gym without getting stuck. Probably depends on how much weight I've put on the bar, to be honest with you. Probably still could get stuck. So non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs, such as rocuronium and vecuronium, bind to the alpha subunits of acetylcholine receptors, but they only need to bind to one subunit to produce blockade. Whereas during normal physiology, two acetylcholine molecules need to bind, one each to the two alpha subunits of the receptor to open the channel. Depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drugs, such as succimethonium, produce a prolonged depolarization of the end plate region, resulting in the failure of propagation of new action potentials to the motor end plate and therefore provide neuromuscular blockade. So now on to monitoring. We monitor the ECG, the blood pressure, sometimes brainwaves via abyss or entropy, but so rarely the neuromuscular junction. Now, some among you may be faithful users of neuromuscular monitors, but we know many anaesthetists aren't. Now, we do understand the practical issues here. Sometimes the availability of such monitoring is limited or even non-existent. But let's pretend we're in an ideal world and run through the physiology of neuromuscular monitoring and some of the equipment we can use to do so. In general, neuromuscular function is monitored by evaluating the muscular response to a supramaximal stimulation of a peripheral motor nerve, most commonly with electricity and most commonly the adductor pollicis muscle with stimulation of the ulnar nerve. External nerve stimulators must generate a supramaximal stimulus, which is around 60 to 80 milliamps, to ensure that all composite nerve fibers are simulated for 0.1 of a millisecond. There are five patterns of stimulation that can be used. Firstly, single twitch stimulation, the simplest form. It is a single supramaximal stimulus applied at frequencies ranging from 0.1 hertz to 1 hertz, or from one stimulus every 10 seconds to one every second. A baseline twitch height is required for it to be a useful measurement, and no reduction in height will be seen until 75% of neuromuscular junction receptors are occupied by muscle relaxant. The second form of stimulation is tetanic stimulation. This is a sustained muscle contraction caused most commonly by stimulus delivered for 0.1 of a millisecond at a frequency of 50 hertz. A partial block with a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker fades with time due to blockade of the presynaptic acetylcholine receptors. Usually, acetylcholine feeds back to the presynaptic receptors in a positive feedback mechanism to ensure a continuing supply of acetylcholine. Tetanic stimulation is painful for a non-anesthetized patient and actually may produce lasting antagonism of neuromuscular blockade in the stimulated muscle, meaning the section that you test of the muscle may not be representative of other muscle groups. Now, I can actually state firsthand that tetanic stimulation of your own nerves is incredibly painful. I've done it to myself by accident before. I do not recommend it. <laughs> Great. Yeah, no. Now, the third type of stimulation is post-tetanic potentiation and count. Firstly, tetanic stimulation is applied and then stimuli at 1 hertz are started three seconds afterwards. The number of twitches is inversely related to the depth of the block, so fewer twitches means a deeper block. It is useful when the degree of neuromuscular blockade is over 95% and assists in estimating the time until the first twitch during TOF testing will appear. So when a single twitch or a trainer four count are unable to provoke any response, use this mode. So fourthly, ironically, is the trainer four. <laughs> It is 4.1 millisecond stimuli delivered at 2 hertz, i.e. 1 every half a second. 
either the train of fall count or the train of fall ratio is recorded, the ratio being the ratio of the fourth twitch height to the first twitch height. A normal ratio or control is a value of one. Partial block with a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocker sees the ratio fade in a fashion inversely proportional to the degree of the blockade. When receptor occupancy is over 70%, T4 starts to decrease. When the occupancy is 75 to 80%, T4 has decreased by 25% and T1 starts to decrease. T4 disappears when T1 is approximately 25% of its original height. When receptor occupancy is over 90%, T4 disappears. At 95% occupancy, only T1 is present. And lastly, we have double burst stimulation, which describes the delivery of two bursts of stimulus separated by 0.75 seconds. Each burst consists of three 0.2 millisecond stimuli separated by 20 milliseconds. The control response is two short muscle contractions of equal strength. In partial paralysis, the second response is weaker than the first. The value of double burst stimulation lies in the better ability for the anaesthetist to appreciate a weaker motor response and thus residual neuromuscular blockade when compared to the TOF ratio. And because of this, it can be used to detect minor blockade that's not as easily detectable. For example, if the magnitude of the two stimuli are the same, significant blockade does not exist. So how do we use these in practice? Most commonly, the train of four is used to monitor the depth of neuromuscular blockade. Sometimes this can come as a module on our anaesthetic machine, but these do require a baseline measurement while the patient is not paralysed in order to be truly accurate. Nerve stimulators are also available as standalone units. There are many brands available, but they all work roughly the same way. A train of four ratio of 0.9 is generally considered an endpoint for adequate recovery from neuromuscular blockade. Reversal of neuromuscular blockade is also something which we may not give a huge amount of thought to after the primary exam. Reversal agents traditionally inhibit acetylcholinesterase, increasing the amount of acetylcholine available at the neuromuscular junction and overcoming the effects of neuromuscular blocking drugs. The commonly studied anticholinesterases during the primary exam are neostigmine, pyridostigmine and edrophonium. Kate, pop quiz, what's the dose of edrophonium? I don't think I've ever given entrophonium, so I might not be much use to you. But let's talk about something I'm a bit more familiar with, which is neostigmine. Neostigmine forms a carbamylated enzyme complex with acetylcholinesterase, and it also inhibits plasma cholinesterase. It can be used to reverse non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, but is also used for the treatment of myasthenia gravis and in urinary retention. If used alone, it will cause a bradycardia and it may precipitate bronchospasm in asthmatics. How many of you out there use weight-based neostigmine dosing? Kate? So I happen to know from my recent study on this topic that the dose of neostigmine is 50 mics per kilo. For a standard 70 kilo patient, we really should be using 3.5 milligrams. But we all know that neostigmine comes in 2.5 milligram ampules. So that does seem to have become the standard practice. Most of the time, this seems to work okay, or does it? The incidence of residual neuromuscular blockade is difficult to quantify as incidences vary so much in the literature. However, a systematic literature review of observational studies of anaesthetic departments using neostigmine for reversal found residual neuromuscular blockade on entry to the post-anaesthetic care unit to affect anywhere between 3.5% to 90% of patients, with a median of 30%. This is scarily high. I'm not completely surprised, to be honest. Mm. I'm finding not infrequently, particularly with patients who are older and obese, that residual neuromuscular blockade is not uncommon. What I find during a longer case is I often have to give them anywhere between 50 to 100 milligrams of rocuronium cumulatively. Mm. And this is in response to them, you know, coughing or I can actually see that they're 
neuromuscular blockade is wearing off and they need it for the surgery. Mm. But then sometimes you get them breathing at the end, they're breathing well on pressure support, generating pretty good volumes. But even 10 minutes after neostigma, and they still look pretty terrible when they're extubated mm. and you give them some Sugamidex and they kind of wake up. Mm, that's so, so true. Mm. Now, we don't want to provide free advertising for Sugamidex, <laughs> but despite the fact that they have sponsored a lot of the recent literature on the topic of residual neuromuscular blockade, I think we've all seen in practice how effective and safe it is for rocuronium reversal. Something else to keep in mind for those who do use neostigmine is that it needs to be given with plenty of time to work. Miller shows that the mean time to peak effect is at least 10 minutes, meaning giving it two minutes before you extubate your patient may be inadequate to properly reverse them. And don't forget that many other factors affect the speed and adequacy of recovery after neuromuscular blockade. These include the depth of the blockade, the type of anticholinesterase administered, the dose of anticholinesterase, the rate of spontaneous recovery from the neuromuscular blocker, the concentration of inhaled anaesthetic, given that inhalational anaesthetics enhance neuromuscular blockade, and the use of other medications intraoperatively that potentiate the duration of the neuromuscular blockade. And a good example of this is magnesium. So finally, let's talk about Sugamidex. It is an interesting testament to the passage of time that when I sat the primary exam in 2011, I had one line in my notes regarding Sugamidex, and all it said was, <laughs> page X in Millers. So, <laughs> Oh, no. Well, we should probably fill in the gaps for your notes then, Kate. Now, with regards to Sugamidex, SU stands for sugar, and Gamidex stands for gamma cyclodextran, the drug's structural model. Its 3D form looks somewhat like a donut and it works by chelating or encapsulating free drug molecules to form a strong, stable complex with a very low dissociation rate, estimated to be 1 in 25 million molecules. The reduction in free plasma rocuronium causes a concentration gradient favouring the movement of rocuronium from the tissue to plasma, and it's through this mechanism that occupancy at the neuromuscular junction decreases and reversal occurs. Sugamidex doesn't produce any metabolites and is mostly excreted unchanged through the urine. With regards to dosing, it is recommended at 2 mg per kilo for moderate blockade, up to the reappearance of T2 in a train of four, four milligrams per kilo for deep blockade, which is at least one to two post-tetanic counts, and 16 milligrams per kilo for immediate reversal. Interestingly, the product manufacturer recommends dosing on actual body weight. There isn't enough safety data for the manufacturer to recommend use in patients with severe renal impairment classified as a creatinine clearance below 30 mils per minute. The other main consideration is in patients taking the oral contraceptive pill. Having a dose of Sugamidex is considered equivalent to one missed daily dose of an oral contraceptive and contraceptive advice should be tailored as such. Kate, how do you use Sugamidex in your practice? Well, I'm very lucky in that I work in a centre where Sugamidex is actually very easily available. Now, that said, because it is an exceptionally expensive drug, I try and limit my use to patients that I absolutely want to be well reversed. So I tend to use them in obesity, in patients that are obese, particularly as well for patients where I've had to give repeated doses of neuromuscular mm. blockade. But for the most part, I, I ask myself the question, can neostigmine glycopyrrolate safely be used in this patient? And if the answer to, to that is yes, then I use neoglyco. Probably something that's also worth mentioning is that I do tend to favour Sugamidex if I'm anesthetizing overnight. I tend, you know, there are certain situations where you don't want to mess around with a potentially bad residual neuromuscular blockade. And three o'clock in the morning when the hospital's fairly deserted is one of those situations. But Kate, how about you? What do, where do you use Sugamidex? 
Yeah, I think I'd say I'm similar, you know, just sort of can I do this safely with neostigmine? And if not, similar situation, uh, it's available, but it's expensive mm. and it's just not as freely available as maybe other places. So uh, I try to put some thought into it. Mm, I think that's a good good approach. So it's coming to the end of the podcast mm-hmm. and every end of every podcast, we talk about what we have learned in anesthesia this week. So Kate, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? Well, I have learned that surgeons and proceduralists can be absolutely rubbish at estimating the duration of their procedures. Now, it's probably worth mentioning that this is not something new that I've learned. More of a a reaffirmation of a previously learned principle. I won't go into details. It'll just make me angry. (laughs) Kate, what have you learned this week? Uh, I guess I have learned the ongoing strategy around managing one's anxiety around certain cases. Mm. Um, So I had a pretty big difficult case in in a patient that um, was complicated and yeah just kind of learning strategies to deal with one's own stress and anxiety Mm. and just channeling that into concentrating on providing the best care possible in good you know in good faith uh, in the sense that just using the energy to try to get the best outcome you can for the patient mm. as well as other stress reduction techniques like doing a bit of yoga and that sort of thing. Yeah, so, so that's, again, that's a good example of how stress reduction techniques for exams can be applied outside of the exam setting. Very true, very true. So, yeah. Well, it's been another big discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you spread the word to follow us on your favourite podcast platform and even review us. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep Breaths.